This week, fish out of water develop a surprising skill. They work pretty well for a fish, you know. I mean, it's, it's quite something. And the scientists studying what makes Stilton smelly and Camembert squidgy. So my research is um, pretty much entirely focused on the study of the microbial communities that grow on the surface of cheese. So that's sort of our lab rat. Plus imaging an object using light that never went near it. This is The Nature Podcast for August the 28th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. Anyone with an experimental outlook and a pet goldfish will know that fish can't walk on land. But at some point in evolution, this is exactly what began to happen. Fish gave rise to land-loving creatures. Beginning about 400 million years ago, their flappy fins became limbs. One way to find out how this change might have happened is to look at the fossil record, to those ancient intermediate stages between swimming and walking, to see how fish skeletons, at least, changed with their forays onto land. Or you could do what Emily Standen has done, and see what happens to fish when you raise them on land. That's right, like fish out of water. Here's Emily. The great thing about the fossil record when we dig up fossils is we see the skeletal structure of things. So we can have an idea of what their bones look like. And from living animals and how anatomy works, we can, we can guess where muscles were attached and, and things like that and how they might have moved. But we don't really know how they moved. And so by looking at living animals that are similar, what we can begin to do is look at how they move around and compare what their skeletal structures look like, how they moved, and maybe make some inference about how fossils may have moved. So with this in mind, you raised some fish in water and then on the land. Yes, exactly. So I did get, get met with some very funny looks in the beginning. So the, the fish we chose is Polypterus senegalis. It's an African fish that can actually breathe air. It has proper lungs. And, uh, and it is known to move out of, of lakes and rivers in the wild, usually when water starts to dry up. So I took some of those fish and put them in an environment that was terrestrial. And what that means is that it was just basically land, but it was very wet land. So we had about a, a millimeter of water skimmed across the surface. And then just like at the supermarket, when you go to pick your lettuce, there's misters to keep the vegetables all nice and crisp. We had misters like that over top of the fish. So inside the aquarium, which was covered with glass, it was very, very humid. So the fish were happy and moist in there. So we raised uh, a group of these fish in this moist terrestrial environment for uh, the better part of a year and then compared them with their cohort that was just raised in water. Did you have any very able walkers among the group or some that were just really slow to pick it up? <laughs> That's an interesting comment. Well, what's very cool about these fish is they can all walk. So whether you grew up on land or not, they can all walk and they walk pretty well for a fish. You know, I mean, it's, it's quite something. But the thing that we found that was really interesting was that the fish that were raised on land, they lifted their heads a little higher when they planted their fins on the ground to move forward, they planted their fins closer to their midline. They're reducing the friction of their body against the land and supporting themselves more effectively. So you actually see this change in behavior. So what we actually revealed was, was existing plasticity, is what we call it, 
So existing variation that's in the animals that the difference of the environment pulled out. Have you studied the offspring of these fish, their their grandkids, to see if they can also walk the walk? (laughs) No, we have not, unfortunately. We would love to be able to do that. Uh, To date, uh, it's very difficult to get these guys to breed in captivity. It's on the list of things to do. (laughs) Miracles can happen. I love that you consider the miracle here to be getting them to breed when you taught some fish to walk. (laughs) Oh, well, I I don't want to take credit for teaching them to walk. They knew how to do that. They just started doing it better. And the thing, actually, that I haven't noted is that the, the second change, we didn't look just at behavior, but we looked at the anatomy of the shoulder girdle. So uh, there were anatomical changes in the, in the bones of the, the pectoral girdle that resemble the same key evolutionary changes that occurred in the fossil stem tetrapods that lead up to animals that moved out onto land. For the kind of broader evolution point, does this sort of seal the deal then that, there, that it is possible for fish to start tentatively taking little steps on their fins? I'm not sure if you can say anything steals the deal when you talk evolution, um, but most certainly it's very exciting because it's the first time that uh, we've really shown that plasticity, plasticity that's within an animal, um, may have contributed to a macroevolutionary change. And what I mean by that is a big evolutionary change, like the change from fins into limbs. I'm going to, um, I'll report back on my latest experiment to try and get slugs to levitate. Excellent. Oh, I would like to hear about that. That was Emily Standen, now at the University of Ottawa in Canada. She did the study at McGill University, just next door in Montreal. And if you still don't believe that fish can really walk, there's a brilliant video on our website of them and some fish that are not so good at strolling. Check that out on youtube.com slash nature video channel. Keep an ear out for the research highlights this week featuring thirsty plants and painkillers. But before that, taking a picture of something using light that never went near it. When you snap a photo, your camera is measuring light. The sensor detects particles of light called photons that bounce off the object you're taking a photo of. So when we heard that scientists had made pictures with light that's never measured, it seemed impossible. But of course it's not impossible, it's just quantum physics. The researchers wanted to know what information they could get on a photon without detecting it, so they created twin pairs of photons that are indistinguishable to see if they could get one twin to interact with an object and this interaction be seen in the other. Puzzled? Here's Lizzie Gibney talking to author Gabriella Bajetto lemos from the Institute of Quantum Optics in Vienna, Austria. So in general, to take an image of an object, one illuminates it with light and the camera detects exactly that light, but that after it interacted with the object. So talk me through your experiment then. Here you somehow point the camera away from the object, but still get an image. How, how does it work? We use a concept of twin photons, which are photons that are born together, and they share uh, many properties. And what we do is illuminate the object with one of the photons from a pair, And instead of collecting the light that's scattered from that object, we collect the light from the other photon, which is the sister of the photon that interacted with the object. So even though it doesn't pass through the object because it's twin did, it has some kind of imprint? Yes, because they're twins, they they, even though they they later they separate and each one goes one way and 
they continue sharing um, information. And this information can be accessed by both of them together or either one. And so what does it look like, this image that we produce? How exactly do we go about then reproducing the object? We have one pair of photons that is created in two different places. So I have two crystals. Either can create a pair of photons. And as long as I don't know which crystal created the pair of photons, we can say in quantum mechanics that it's effectively as if both had created the, the pair of photons the same pair. So in terms of, of, of the experiment, it's as if one pair of photons could have taken two different parts. And as long as we don't know which part, when we, we put these two parts together, then these photons add or subtract. So it's if they could, when they come together, you can see two humps, for example, they would add and you have a bigger hump. Or if you get two humps and you subtract them, you get zero. So this only happens as long as I don't know which path the photon actually came from. You're effectively seeing the result of it having gone down both paths in the weird quantum mechanical way. Yeah, so in quantum mechanics we say if we don't know which path it came down, it must have come down through both paths. So in this case, when, it, when we have two paths that are joined and they are indistinguishable in the sense that we have no idea if a photon came down one of them or the other, then these, um, these paths effectively sum or subtract. And that's the image that you get. And that's the image that we get. The photons that actually do pass through the object, you just chuck away. But how can you definitively prove that they, they haven't somehow got into your camera, into your detector? How do we know for sure that it's not those ones that we're seeing? What we did was to use two completely different colours for the photon that went through the object and the photon that was detected. And we did this so that the photon that went through the object couldn't be detected by our camera because our camera is insensitive to it. In fact, this is a photon in what we call telecommunications wavelength, and our cameras just can't see it, or infrared wavelength. On the other hand, the photon that we do detect does not go through one of the objects, for example. It, it, so the object is opaque to this, to this color. So we know that this photon couldn't have gone through the object, and on the other hand, the camera doesn't see the photons that can go through the object. And so what kinds of things can you image with this technique? We had a cardboard cutout that we imaged. The cardboard acts as a sort of detector, and then we have information as to which path a photon came through. So you get a kind of silhouette, I suppose. And what, what, was, this? what was the silhouette? It was a cat. <laughs> so we had a cardboard cutout in which we had the cat, and the body was cut out of the cardboard, such that this was to remind us to make a reference to Schrodinger's cat, and this is because this experiment brings out the same idea of Schrodinger's uh, paradox is that you have a, a cat in a box and there's, there's some poison that could have been released or not. So you don't know if the cat is dead or alive before you open the box. So before you open the box, the cat is effectively dead and alive. Here it's the same idea. Mm, and, and in the photon, that's, it's gone down both routes. It's both gone through the object and it hasn't. And, and why would you want to do that? Why is it particularly useful for biological samples? Well, because um, in general, uh, many cases in, um, in, in biological imaging, one wants um, photons which have very low energy. And these are exactly 
the photons that are difficult to detect because cameras um, in general can't see low light at these wavelengths or these colors. And we think that if we play around with it enough, we can find a way to use this photon that interacted with this object but isn't detected. So if I only detect it twin and don't, don't destroy this photon that interacted with the object, can I use it later for something else, for example, instead of just discarding it? Gabriella Bejeso lemos there. The paper is at nature.com slash nature and the image they made is on our Twitter feed at Nature Podcast. Don't worry, cheese fans. That report on the microbes that make the good stuff is coming up shortly. Right now, it's time for the best science from outside nature. It's the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. Parched plants can extract water direct from the chemical structure of minerals. Some plants survive in very dry environments where their roots don't reach the water table. These areas are often rich in gypsum, which has H2O as part of its chemical formula. Researchers studied one hardy shrub that lives on gypsum outcrops in northern Spain. They looked at the chemical signature of water in the plant's plumbing and found that it came from gypsum, rather than from the environment. The plants might extract the water when the sun heats up the gypsum, or by chemically altering the soil to break out the H2O. There's gypsum on Mars too. That could be a life-giving resource. More in Nature Communications. It's not just bread that baker's yeast is useful for. The raising agent can also make painkillers. Opiates like morphine and codeine are essential in managing pain but they rely on opium poppies whose supply isn't stable. Researchers in the US wanted to find alternative ways of making opiates, so they engineered baker's yeast to express poppy genes and then kick-started the drug-making process with a few opioid molecules from the poppy. The yeast produced enough natural and semi-synthetic opioids to make the technique useful for the pharmaceutical industry. The next step is to engineer yeast to make the painkillers from simple sugars, ridding the need for poppies altogether. Find that paper in Nature Chemical Biology. Microbiologist Rachel Dutton spends most of her time in a gleaming lab surrounded by incubators, DNA sequencers, and other expensive equipment. In my lab, we're really interested in microbial communities. Um, we're using high-throughput DNA sequencing, and, and then we're taking these communities and we're actually culturing all the species in the lab. So what is she doing? On a farm here in the middle of the Somerset countryside. The answers can be found in cheese. So my research is um, pretty much entirely focused on the study of the microbial communities that grow on the surface of cheese during the aging process. So this is what we would think of as the rind of the cheese. Um, So that's sort of our lab rat in, uh, in our research. In a paper published last month, her team at Harvard University cataloged the different fungi and bacteria living on more than 100 cheeses from around the world from sharp Swiss Emmentaler to creamy French Camembert. Dutton's team found a menagerie of microbes in cheese rinds. Their composition was influenced by cheese-making conditions, things like moisture, salt, and the type of aging. She's come to Somerset to share her findings with the cheesemakers, 
but she's also on the lookout for her next study. I think I think that the cheesemakers really um, they come to us with some of the problems that they're having, and those you know, in many cases are actually really interesting microbiological questions. So it's really a way for us to get a much closer understanding of what's actually happening on the cheeses by talking to cheesemakers directly. Yeah, hi, my name is Joe Bennett and I make goat's cheese in Staffordshire. I mean, generally, I think cheese should always reflect the, the, you know, the area that your animals are, are living in, the environment. So I suppose our terroir would be quite specific to the part of Staffordshire where we make cheese and um, I'd be quite happy for anybody wanting to make goat's cheese to visit us because I know if they go away to another part of the country and and raise goats somewhere else it's not going to be the same cheese because there'll be slight differences in the environment, in the feed, in the, 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 the actual physical cheese room facilities. In some places, cheeses are at risk of losing that microbial terroir. That's according to microbiologist Natalie Desmazieux at the University of Caen in northern France. Uh, we are quite sure that microbial diversity is decreasing in raw milk and such decrease uh, may cause loss of flavor in uh, traditional cheeses, including Camembert de Normandie cheese. But there are ways to restore this diversity. Desmazieux's research has identified variables from the breed of cow to the kind of milking machine that boosts the diversity of microbes in raw milk. And this summer, her team started working with cheesemakers in Normandy on a more radical approach. Add back the microbes that made their cheeses so distinct. The idea is to um, screen uh, microbial isolates. We have uh, thousands of microbial isolates, thousands and thousands of microbial isolates uh, in the, the collection. Uh, the idea is to screen uh, microbial groups for, techni- uh, for technologically interesting traits like acidification, pro- production of volatiles, Uh, compounds that um, promote flavor. There's a similar project just beginning on the other side of the world. My name is Alison Lansley and my role, I'm in Australia, I look after the Australian Specialist Cheesemakers Association. Australian cheesemakers can't use raw milk to make cheese, except in a few rare cases. But Lansley and her colleagues have a cunning plan. They want to re-instill the flavors of Australia and cheeses that have to be pasteurized. They plan to work with scientists to identify the microbes in raw milk, culture them, and then put them back into pasteurized milk. The idea being that if there is some geographically distinct uh, flora in, in that milk, they have the potential to create something that's geographically their own. They have their own terroir, if you like, a bit like wine. Um, and that will enable them to develop a distinctive style quite different to what commercial cheesemakers can produce. The goal isn't to turn out a lot of uniform cheeses, but to free the microbes to make something special. Natalie Desmazier again. In my opinion, artisan cheeses, traditional cheeses are uh, surprise, surprises. And each time you, you eat such cheese, you are waiting for a different thing. That's why uh, microbial diversity is, um, is important, because uh, micro- 
interactions between microorganisms uh, change depending on the of the surrounding environment and this makes uh, cheese changing during the year depending on season of uh, maybe feeding practices uh, on farm uh, of the dairy cattle it's a surprise <laughs> That report from Ewan Calloway. He was speaking to Natalie Desmazur and before her, Rachel Dutton, Alison Lansley and Staffordshire cheesemaker Joe Bennett. News time now and joining me to tag team the news, David Ray and Celeste Beaver. Now, Celeste, we're going to start with you. The story that we're focusing on is Ebola. Could you tell me a little bit, refresh listeners' memory on the current situation? Sure. So the outbreak began in March and has spread to four countries now. Um, and has killed um, over 1,400 people, which is more than all previous outbreaks combined. And that's probably an underestimate. Right. So it's a pretty severe and pretty long-lasting outbreak as, as Ebola goes. I mean, obviously, very nasty disease as well. It kills kind of half of the people that it infects. But there have been some success stories in the media with a drug called, depending on your English or American, ZMAP or ZMAP. That's been getting a lot of attention. Two American healthcare workers who took ZMAP did then recover from Ebola. But the news came out more recently that one African who took the drug did not recover and has died. The drug was experimental, had not been tested in people. So it's very early days really to say whether that is why the Americans survived. No one really knows. What we're focusing on in uh, Nature News this week is... When will the outbreak end and what do we need to do to end it? And actually, the drug is a very, very small part of, of the answer to that. Right. So if it's not the drug, then what else could could prompt this outbreak to, to falter and eventually stop? What's needed is a, a much bigger sort of international response. What we're not seeing is kind of a response similar to the Haiti earthquake or the Haiyan typhoon. And that's really what we need. So more money, more resources and just a lot more basic um, public health measures being rolled out in Africa to the people on the front line who are dealing with the crisis. So these aren't expensive experimental drugs, but actually very basic public health measures. Yeah. One very effective measure is quarantine, but it has to be done right. Uh, So there was a riot in Monrovia that was sparked when a neighbourhood was quarantined. That's because the officials dealing with it were insensitive and didn't kind of educate the people they were trying to quarantine. Um, On the other hand, there's a sort of happy story uh, in a village in Kono, Sierra Leone, where there was a successful quarantine. The officials uh, showed concern for the people affected and explained why the quarantine had to happen. And, you know, there's kind of one story of one of the guys in the village who was going to go out and buy cigarettes. And the health officials kind of gave that job to someone else to go get him the cigarettes. And as a result, um, the 30 people were quarantined for the whole 21 day isolation period and no one in the surroundings came down with the virus. So it kind of shows it can work when people are trained with how to do it and done with the right kind of care. Another kind of thing that would that would really help is um, more protective gear like gloves, masks, gowns, and also the training uh, to use those properly in order to effectively contain the spread. So 
Um, in one really interesting example was in a part of rural eastern Liberia where some nurses were preparing to strike over a lack of protective equipment. And then um, a charity called Last Mile Health provided the equipment plus the training and how to use them. And then the nurses continued to work. I guess the challenge ahead now is that the Liberian Ministry of Health estimates it now needs 450,000 pairs of medical gloves. But like you say, it's not it's not a fancy drug. Um, if they can get that equipment and the training, that's the way to stop the outbreak. And finally, I mean, the scientists that Erica Czech Haydn spoke to for the story, what kind of estimates are they putting on how long this outbreak might continue? The expected period is four to nine months. That's not including post-traumatic effects that will be there on the economy and the community. Um, that's just for the, the sort of the virus to stop spreading. Um, unfortunately, a lot more Ebola news um, in our section and elsewhere in the media. Now, David Ray, turning to you, um, you've brought us more of an exclusive story, in fact. This isn't exactly um, running all over the news pages like the Ebola story is, but our reporter Dan Cressy has been to a marine conservation conference. Yeah, he has. Last week he was up in, uh, in Glasgow for the International Marine Conservation Congress. And uh, I think well, one of the things he picked up on was a very interesting couple of talks uh, about whale watching. And this is obviously a booming sort of ecotourism business, I think worth way more than $2 billion a year. We're looking for whales and dolphins all around the world. I think there's well over 150 countries that offer this. But the danger is, and the researchers have pointed out, that it may well be affecting the, um, the sea mammals. Quite often these boats get very close, and as well as actual collisions, which do unfortunately kill dolphins and whales, there's also the, the more cumulative effect of upsetting their general behaviour. So we're talking about disturbing them when they should be eating, for example, and they're causing them to you know, stress responses of them having to escape these boats or feel they have to escape the boats. So as well as the Dalek collisions, there's also these sort of little factors building up. And as one of our researchers says, that they could be enough to actually push some of these species, we're talking about minke, whales and, um, and bottlenose dolphins, over the edge in some cases. What's the evidence, though, that these interactions are detrimental to the health of marine mammals? Well, a few studies, one up in, in Iceland, uh, done on whales, uh, minke whales uh, in a bay up there. And this was the, the, the effects of causing changes in feeding behaviour and also increasing their rate of breathing when they're trying to escape the boats. Uh, but at the same time, the same group actually went back and studied the same group of whales after finding it this out and said that actually they may not be affecting the whale population. They may be affecting individual whales and stressing them out, but they may not be actually harming the numbers. But other studies done, for example, in New Zealand and in uh, Cam- the border of Cambodia and Laos, where there's the famous Illawadi dolphin population, which is a sort of threatened species that lives down there, which is again hounded by, uh, by tourist boats and people wanting to see them. That is far more likely to be at risk and we're actually talking hard numbers here so for example in the uh, doubtful sound in New Zealand we're talking about a sort of 20% or 15% loss of dolphins in the last few years and how they're dying is is difficult to tell but certainly whale watching has got to play a part in that guidelines then for keeping boats a bit further away or stopping altogether these kinds of um, tourist missions? Yeah, I mean, in fairness, most operators would sort of either apply their own guidelines or in some cases that there's actually regulations laid down by the sort of national organisations for them. But unfortunately, they can often be quite inadequate. And I think also trying to keep boats at 50 metres when the tourists are baying for the, the boat driver to get up and close is very difficult. And one example we give is in Panama, where uh, the Bocas del Tola's uh, haven, if you like, of, of dolphin watching, where there's been a number of boat collisions and uh, not necessarily involving uh, whale and dolphin watching clips but boat collisions anyway uh, that, that are killing dolphins directly and we've, we've seen 10 animals killed in the last uh, or between 2012 and 2013 but there's a counterpoint as well here and that's that 
it may not be the whale watching that's harming these populations. It may be other factors. And in particular, we have a great quote from a guy saying, getting entangled in fishing nets, which is a bigger issue than whale watching. And of course, what do fishermen do when they can't fish anymore? They, they do whale watching tours. Well, thank you, David, and to Celeste for the earlier update. For both those stories and more, head to nature.com slash news. That's all for this week. Also on the Nature Video channel, the story of art's most precious colour, and coming up soon, a video to accompany nature's Ebola coverage. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>